let him know what the message is sort of going to be about every Sunday. I sent it to him the Sunday before. Man, he comes through every week. Thank you. That was a great selection. Appreciate it. Uh, before we get started this morning, okay, um, it's time for the speaker's confession, okay? Um, this uh, little letter that we've been reading together, this is the fifth Sunday that we've uh, been looking at this little letter called 1 John. Now I have to tell you, this is probably my favorite epistle in the New Testament. I love this thing. I've taught it many, many times. And most of you know we're going through this as ordered by whoever is above and says, take this passage, this passage, and this passage. But I, I have to be honest with you that it's very difficult to go through a letter like this and not know what came before. It's not like looking at the book of Genesis where you can take one event, one event, one event, one event. Not like anything historical. What, ha what we talk about today depends on what we talked about three weeks ago. Some of you weren't here three weeks ago, which brings us to this very, very bad word which I really don't like. It's called review. And whenever a speaker says review, that is a signal to not off. <laughs> okay, so I keep it short, but one more time, and we just have one more to go after this Sunday. Uh, let me kind of go through this to set the scene where this particular passage fits in this letter of 1 John. Because without this little bit of background, this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. This is written by John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, the same person who wrote the book of Revelation, the same person who wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which means that this person has contributed more to the New Testament, or at least as much as the Apostle Paul. Okay? This is the person who was a disciple of Jesus on the inner circle. This John walked with Jesus for his whole time on earth, and he saw something. He watched Jesus' life. He's now at the end of his life. The church that he has been involved with is mostly a Jewish church. They have been scattered in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and scattered most Jews and Christians went with them. He is in the city of Ephesus, which is now in present-day Turkey, and he has been ministering, at least this writing, is addressed to seven churches that are nearby, relatively nearby. They don't have much information. And what he has told the churches and wants to tell us is that he saw Jesus live a life that was remarkable on earth. And he realized he could live that same life. Not that he was going to be the Son of God. But he lived the life and he gave it a label. And the label means nothing, but this is his label. He said it's called fellowship. And what he meant by that was an intimate walk with God. Like you're present with God every day. That's how Jesus lived. Jesus lived with this intimacy with the Father in heaven. And John said, I've learned to live this way. And I want you to live this way. And then he goes on in this letter to say, what this means is we have to learn to walk in the light. We have to choose moment by moment for some of us to say, yes, this is what I want in my life. I want to walk with God today, right now, this moment. And as we choose that, we need to understand that there will be voices that come to us out of the culture in which we live. 
Voices that tell us other things that distract us. We need to be aware of that. There are things in the culture that will attract us with what we see and what we want to feel, and they will distract us from this choice to walk in the light and to have fellowship with the Lord God Almighty. Now, what remains and has not been dealt with is dealt with now in this little text. And you can put that up. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 21. I think that John is saying, let me explain to you what motivates us to want this fellowship. What motivates us to disregard the distractions and to walk in this fellowship of light with the living God. Now, if you have a bulletin, take out the outline, because I did the usual Ron thing, and I have changed the verses around. So if you want to open your Bible and follow these verses, you can, but you will notice I have changed them. And secondly, we're not going to have very many slides today, whether that's good or bad for you. It's good for me, because then I can change anything I want to change, and you won't know. So just a few slides, not a lot of pictures, and not the verses up here. So you're going to need one of these little outlines. All right? Now to get us started, I want you to think about this, and I seriously want you to think about this. What motivates people? And there are probably lots of answers to that, depending on who you are, what the circumstances are, and what you need to be motivated to do. But think about this for a little bit. Talk about, think about you. What motivates you to do things? You know what motivates kids to do things. You tell your kid who's 10 years old, clean up your room. What motivates a 10-year-old to clean up his room? It is not because he wants to. Or she. What? Your parents told you to. That is really sweet. What it usually is, you know, if you clean up your room, I'm going to give you a reward. We'll have an ice cream party. And if you don't clean up your your room, I'm going to take away your favorite toy for a month. Now I am motivated if I'm 10 years old, right? What motivates us to do what we do? What motivates a person to get up at 5.30 in the morning, make breakfast, for family, maybe, or just for themselves, and then go to work and work all day. What motivates a person to do that, even when they don't like the work situation they're in? Well, you have to look over and you have to say, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm motivated because of my duty to family. Maybe I am motivated because my parents just instilled it in me. Or maybe I'm motivated because of money. Money is a great motivator of people, say some. Well, there is another motivator in my life, and I want to tell you a story, maybe a little embarrassing story, but I'll tell it to you anyway. I, I'm a single child, okay? I, I grew up in a, in a family that, that really cared about me because they didn't have anybody else to care about. Okay? And, and I can tell you, they, they were Germans. My mom and dad are both German ethnically, not from Germany, but that's their background. I've shared this before in this place. My mother and father did not hug. My mother and father were not for sweet, wonderful words of praise every day of my life. But my dad was a pretty amazing man. 
When I was a kid, my dad read Tarzan of the Apes to me at least eight times. He, I would sit on his lap. I, I loved it. He would read that to me year after year. He would read Tarzan of the Apes, Edgar Rice Burroughs. I, 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 wow, I couldn't believe it. Every summer, my parents had a vacation. My mom taught school. She was out of work for the summer. My dad had two weeks vacation, and he always wanted to go on a road trip, but mother didn't like to go on road trips. So he would take me. And we went to crazy places. Went to Sherbrooke, Canada. First time in my life I ever went in another country. He took me to the Cherokee Reservation in, in North Carolina. I mean, he, he took me all over. Every summer he was dedicated and devoted to me. Man, I knew one thing. My dad loved me. He might not have shown up at all the football games I played in because he had to work. He might have been too busy to be concerned about some of the things that were activities through high school years, but I knew he loved me. Nobody in his family had ever finished high school. Nobody. He quit when he was in sixth grade. His father died. He had to go to work to support the family. That's true in probably many of your parents' or grandparents' cases. Nobody went finished high school. I finished high school, had the opportunity to go to college. He was so excited. No one in his family, no one in my mother's family had ever finished college. So I went off to college. And most of you know my story, and we're not going to go into that. But I met this woman named Barbara, and we <coughs> fell madly in love with each other. And, and during my first year in college, I was having a little bit of a struggle between studies and Barbara. So I remember, and I'm not sure how it was communicated back to my parents. I don't know if I told them. I don't know if I called them on the phone and told them. I can't imagine I did that. I'm pretty sure I didn't write them a letter. I, I don't know how it communicated back. But I sort of indicated to my parents that, you know, maybe I just quit school for now. Because, you know, I got Barbara. And my father sent me a letter. My father never, never wrote a letter to me. Just one. One letter. I was kind of surprised. I'm in college and I, I get this letter from my father. And I opened it up. It wasn't very long. And he said, for me, would you please stay and finish? You've got to be kidding. I'd go to hell and back for you. You love me. You want that? You got it. And I finished. I didn't want to do it. But there was a motivation in my life called love. And that motivates lots of us to do many things. Now we're ready to look at this text because I think John is saying it is love that motivates us to want to have this fellowship with God. Here's what he says in chapter 1, in, in chapter 4, 1 John, verse 9. I changed the order. I skipped a couple of verses. We'll come back to them. Listen to this or read it with me. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We saw that word propitiation back in chapter 2, verse 2, has reference to the place of sacrifice in the Old Testament. John is telling us he sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that we might be forgiven of missing the mark of God's righteousness. What great love is this? He wants us to understand what kind of love God has had for us. A sacrificial giving love. Now the first thing we need to do is to define this love. What is God's love? Because we have in our mind all kinds of misconceptions about love. So the best way to define what this love is, is to define what this love is not. Okay? Here's the first thing this love is not. It is not indulgence. Now we try this on kids. I love you, I'm going to buy you a new toy. We try it on friends. I love you, I'm going to buy you a gift. I love you, so I'm going to indulge you and make you happy. I love you, so I want you to have all your desires fulfilled. This love has nothing to do with indulgence. Got that? This love has nothing to do with warm, fuzzy feelings. That's great for Hollywood. This has nothing to do with giving people a hug. This has nothing to do with kisses. This has nothing to do with a relationship with a new car or a new dress. Like, I love it. This has nothing to do with indulgence. This has nothing to do with making you feel warm and fuzzy. That's not what this love is. This love is not permissiveness. You know, you don't say to your kid, I love you, so go play in the street. I love you, so you can do whatever you want to do. Wives don't say to their husbands, I love you, so go out and gamble away all of our resources. That's not love. That's permissiveness. And God's love is not indulgent. God's love is not a warm fuzzy. And God's love is not permissive. God's love is God's best for us. That's it. And some have said that is the definition of God's love. God loves us with what is best for us. I like that definition. God loves me not be giving me what I want, not be indulging me so that I can have anything I want, not by making me feel good. God loves me by saying, I'm giving to you the very best I can give for your life forever. That's God's love. Now, if you'll buy into that definition of love, this whole argument in the book of 1 John moves into another stage. Because John says, well, if this motivates us to fellowship with God, it also influences how we relate to other people. So that brings us to 1 John chapter 4, back to verse 7. This is what John says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love, you ready for this? Does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Wow. So if God has loved us that way, we also ought to love what is God's best for one another. It just raises one little question. Who's one another? Okay? Couple of suggestions about who one another is. First suggestion is one another is a brother or a sister in the family. So most of us can handle that, although some of you grew up with siblings and you can't stand them now, okay? But most of us can handle this if you keep it within the family, keep it within brothers and sisters and moms and dads, maybe aunts and uncles and grandparents. Okay, so we can love them with God's best there in the family. John's going to kind of refer it that way to us in chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. We're going to read a minute when he says you need to love brothers, and you can just add brothers and sisters. So it could be the immediate family, could be the extended family, or it could be, because John in 1 John chapter 5 extends it to the children of God. So we're to love everybody of the same faith. We're to love the people in the church, we're to love the people who go to other churches. And I like that, because this means you probably don't have to love people with a different political view. You don't have to love people who have badly behaved children. You don't have to love people who are unlovely. What a challenge to love your brother and sister and include not just the family and the extended family, but the church family. As a matter of fact, all the people that would be in the church family worldwide. Okay, that's pretty big. Well, make it a little bit bigger. Because some people came to Jesus during the time of his life on earth and they asked him what was the greatest commandment and he explained to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor. Now my neighbor, that's a different thing. I got some oddball neighbors. What do you mean I'm supposed to love my neighbor? Well, maybe that means the same ethnic background. That's my neighbor. Maybe the same economic and maybe same social background, same educational background. We could sort of squeeze that into neighbor. So the man who brought this up with Jesus, when Jesus said to love neighbor, asked a very important question. Who's my neighbor? And you all know how Jesus answered it. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. Hmm, that didn't have anything to do with neighbors. That had to do with people who were despised, who were hated. And Jesus said, apparently, your neighbor is anyone who needs to hear and know God's best. Wow. Do you remember what happened a, a month or so ago in South Carolina with Mother Emanuel Church? Guy goes in, kills these people that are having a little Bible study prayer meeting. You, you all watched this, heard about this on TV. 
And at the end of this, all nine families of people who had lost loved ones all said the same thing. They agreed with this murderer. They said, look, we forgive you. And we pray that God forgives you. And you know, when I watched that, my heart went, oh boy, that's, that, that's tough to say. What motivates a person to say that? unless they're motivated to fellowship in the presence of God and experience God's love as it moves out to the one another. That's quite a challenge. Listen to John as he explains it once again. Chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For he, does not love, for he who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his sister and brother, which includes their neighbor. Now this is pretty messy, folks. So I don't want to bring up any circumstances, but I will pretty well guarantee that in every one of your families today, right now, there are people in the family. I'm not even talking about the neighbor now. I'm talking about people within the family, the greater family, who are outside. No one talks to them. No one visits them. No one cares about them because of something that has happened. Something terrible that has happened. Maybe there's been a divorce. Maybe there's been somebody who stole some money. I don't know what the situation is. It's always a different situation. But they alienate members of the family. Listen to what John says. If we understand the love of God for us, then we practice the presence of God in our life. And we need to love the world, the neighbors, anyone who needs to to feel God's love. John says, here are three results of loving brothers, sisters, neighbors. Chapter 4, verse 12. This is the biggest one. It's when we love others that others see God. Chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's made complete. It's made whole. The only way people are going to see God is when we, who love our neighbors and brothers and sisters, show it to them. We have a friend who has a son living in Iraq. He's been in Iraq for years and years and years. He works among the Kurds. What is he doing there? You think he likes living in Iraq? I don't think so. He's there because he loves these people. And the only way they're going to see God is through him. I got news for you. Governments do not show God's love to people. Do you understand that? I don't know how much you pay attention to the news. Do you know that there is worldwide migration now 
probably greater than there's ever been. There are more refugees roaming around the world trying to find a place away from war, away from devastation, away from abject poverty, not, not just they don't have a meal to eat, they're abject poverty, away from danger of any kind. They're fleeing, they're all over the world, they're going everywhere. Do you pay attention to this? Do you pay attention to the, to the tunnel between France at Cali all the way to the UK, to the United Kingdom, and the thousands of people who try to go through that tunnel every single day to get to the other side, somehow there's some hope for them. Are you aware of the fact that there are 3,000 refugees from Syria, Pakistan, Sudan, North Africa? They're from everywhere. They live in a place called the jungle, 3,000 strong in Cali, outside the city, in a refugee camp. They're lost. I just, I just looked at the BBC News this morning on my app, on my phone. Guess what there is in the jungle, as it's called, in Cali, for the 3,000 refugees. Somebody went there and started a church. Oh, I don't go there. They're not nice people. That's love. You know how much I love Hungary. You know what Hungary is doing right now? They're in the process of doing it, almost finished. They are building a, a fence across their border with Serbia. And they're saying, nobody comes into this country. We can't take any more people here in this country. They're putting a fence up. I, I've heard that before about some other things and other fences. They're putting a fence up. They're doing it. Or nobody's going to come here. The governments don't love people. I just got an email from our friends that live in Budapest. The church I used to pastor there, there's a huge movement of refugees through Budapest. They're coming in. The church has decided, we got to go to the train station and start meeting with these refugees. So we got pictures the other day, their first trip to the train stations. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people living in the three train stations in Budapest, in the parks across the street. Hundreds and hundreds of them have no place to go. They're mostly from Syria, some from Afghanistan, some from Pakistan. They have nothing and no place to go. They can't go home. They fear for their lives. Who's going to show them the love of God? I told you about Juno and Juliana. Juliana and Juneau were refugees, and we met them in Budapest in a refugee camp. Juneau is from Madagascar, Africa. Juliana is from Serbia, just below Hungary. We met them in this horrible, awful refugee camp. They lived in squalor. Terrible. It was as bad as it was what I've seen in Haiti. They have found Christ. They are now ministering among Roma gypsy people on the border. And they sent us a note the other day, just broke our heart. They said, hey, we just applied to get permission to go back to the refugee camp at Peach Gate, where we used to live, and go in there and talk to people about God's love for them. Nobody is going to see God unless they see the love of the people of God. Got that one? First result. Second result. We have confidence. This is a very strange statement. Chapter 4, verse 17. 
By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. What? For the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is a day of accountability coming. After we get done next week with 1 John, we're going to take a look at Revelation and learn a little bit about the accountability of a judgment day to come. But listen to what John says. This love, this love that God instills in us because he loved us and we love others, this sets you free from any kind of fear of death and judgment to come. You're free. And then he adds in verse 18, and you have no fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do we have any fears today? I bet you we could count a whole bunch of them. Some people are afraid their house is going to burn down, literally. I'm sure we all have fears of storms. We all have fears about the future. We all have fears about earthquakes and floods, about enemies, about starvation and attack, about horrific events, about terrorists, about impending doom. Hear what John says? You fellowship with God because God loved us and practicing his presence we begin to love one another, all the one another's. And there is no fear in us. There is nothing to fear in perfect love. Last statement, love and fellowship. Chapter 4, verse 13, this is what John says, and he brought this word up in chapter 2, verse 6, verse 10, in chapter 3, verse 5, by this If we love one another, that's verse 12, by this, if we love one another, we know that we abide in him. He's talked about abiding. And he in us, because he has given us his spirit. If we we defined abiding, it's pretty close to what fellowship is. To be in the presence, to be dwelling in the presence of God. That's where love keeps us and puts us. Chapter 4, verse 14, it all begins with a choice. Really important. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Chapter 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, then God abides in him, and he is in God. Look, I know you all know this. I'm not saying that everybody who says they're a Christian and they follow Jesus Christ need to be able to tell somebody else the day, the moment when they became that. I'm not saying that at all. But this all starts somewhere. And it starts in each of us as we say for the first time, yes. You know what, God? I realize your great love for me. And I'm ready to practice fellowship for the rest of my life. It's got to begin somewhere. 
And if you've never done that, I encourage you this morning to do it. You don't have to do it here in this place. I don't care where you make that decision. It doesn't matter. But make it. Start at least. Last word, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God wants his best for every one of us. He wants his best for our families. He wants his best for our neighbors, no matter who they are and where they live. And I don't know of any greater motivator than the love of God. You bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, for some of us, it's hard to even imagine a God that loves us to this extent. And who are we anyway? Just a bunch of scum on this earth. That the creator God would see fit and want to have a relationship with his creation. Because he loves us and wants his very best for each one of us. Lord, I don't want to run away from that. It overwhelms me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your great love. And as we listen to your love for us and see it worked out in the lives of others, may we too be those who in this world love one another. There is no greater joy than to walk in the love of God. In his name, amen.